Welcome back to Side Quests, episode 38, Final Fantasy VII, episode 23, and this is our second attempt at this. My internet connection is apparently not very good today, so listeners, we're going to do our very best to get through this. And if you are watching on YouTube, you can see that we have a little outline here. If you're not, we're, we can go through it very quickly, and um, then we'll, we'll offer comment on it. But we went through three main sections this time around, Fort Condor, Medeal, and the fall into the live stream. And oh, I, I should pause for a moment just to welcome you, Wes. It's just that we we have been trying this for a few minutes. So so truly it's not a welcome from me, but it should be a welcome from me to you to the listener. So hey. It's good to be here. It's always uh, good to have uh, you. How are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I'm hoping that this internet connection stabilizes. If it sounds like I have any strain on me, it's it's just that additional factor is wearing me a bit thin. You know, it's interesting to what extent. Well, it's with uh, Fort Condor, right? So you want to pick up there with the Phoenix and the huge materia? Yes, of course. And so we, um, you had asked me about the Phoenix cutscene, and I had suggested that. The, the image of a phoenix, just like we see in Harry Potter 2, um, and we hear commented on in the Maps of Meaning course by Jordan Peterson, is the idea of like sort of an old way of looking at oneself or an old ideal dying and a new one taking its place. And you had made the comment that you saw that specifically in Cloud, who had been sort of comatose because he had been caught in a lie about himself or a lying ideal or delusion, and that he had to work or struggle or fight to reintegrate himself under, say, a new aegis. And so you saw sort of the, the birth and death of the Phoenix cycle in his restoration of unity of consciousness. Is, is that an accurate representation of what you were thinking? Yeah, that's, that's pretty succinct. I think uh, we can do a little more to, like, describe the actual fall of the phoenix and yes. the burst of fire that, that that happens at the top of fort condor i mean it's pretty cool um a little gratuitous maybe but why not well what do you think of the fall of the phoenix like i understand that the graphics aren't perfect but like it felt like a statue like had it already been dead and uh petrified that entire time is that why it looked so sort of regal and statuesque gosh yeah see i I was always surprised by that too, and it uh, its fall is so sort of surprising, given that you weren't even sure it was alive the whole time, or at least, I, I mean, that's how I always felt. And it actually reminds me a little bit of that part when you're going through the mountains uh, to Corel for the first time, and you come upon the little nest of birds, and they're all like twittering up there. Um, it's... Yeah, it's kind of a weird little echo of that, actually. Um, but yeah, only in the moment of its fall do you realize that it was alive at all. Well, and you know, it recrawls to me, too, also Dante's uh, Circle 8 and how you get to Circle 8, uh, or rather from 8 to 9 in the Inferno of giants. Those giants seem to be former wooden ruling ideals that were not up to the quality of the Olympian gods, which will later not be up to the quality of the Christian god for Dante. Um, and so like the idea that it just falls down rigidly as if it has calcified over time, as it no longer reflects reality, I think is a 
potentially very strong comment that's being made by its rigid sled-like fall down the mountain. Yeah, well, and again, like the way the materia actually works, the Phoenix summon is something you really only want to use, or you, want, you probably want to save it until your party is in really big trouble, like at least one of your party members is dead. Uh, because part of what it does is revive anyone who's who's who needs to have that life spell cast on them, and so it's kind of a a last ditch effort, and it might just be the thing to uh, to save you. Um, obviously, one of the great you know famous combos that you can do with materia is to pair it with uh, a final attack. Uh, I don't think we have that one yet, but when we do, you know, it's it's like that's the moment when you really. Um, are confronted with kind of what what your your last ditch effort is going to be right it's it's like more than a limit break if you have to use phoenix materia i love that yeah no and i recall that from my first time through having to have those final attack like full life alls for um when air tan storm would wipe out my entire crew when i fought against emerald weapon and yeah that that sort of like it's like having an angel at your side or something like that. But I wanted to ask you about uh, something, and I have a hypothesis about it, Wes, because you've told me that you already have the gold chocobo, and so I know you've been putting some work in, and definitely more work than I have. I'm betting that, because traditionally you also do better than I do on these mini games, that you, A, had more money than I did going into this um, this Corel uh, strategic battle scene, and that you, B, did not have to fight the, uh, the bot, the, the boss, which I found out, I thought, you know, I went in so arrogant and I totally got, I didn't know how to orchestrate battle and my guys got destroyed, but luckily I was strong enough to destroy the boss in the actual uh, three-on-one combat, the actual fight scene combat. So, but I, I, hypothesize, I hypothesize that you won. I, well, to be honest, I only played the little strategy battle like back when we first came to Fort Condor because I read that that's how you could get a, uh, an equipment for Red 13 that would have double materia growth on it. And so I did that um, and got that, that item. But actually this time, all I did was um, place like one person or something, or like maybe nobody just said, I'm ready to go and just yes. let them come all the way up. Because I, was, I just read a little bit further ahead and it said like, hey, just let them do this because it's, you know, it's super easy anyway. It'll save time. So See, that was my other... Yeah. That was my other hypothesis, and I'm so sad that I didn't say it because I, I didn't say it because I thought that as like a gamer, you might have held yourself above that sort of thing. But on the other hand, I do find that to be sort of when the game allows that obvious gaming, and you probably would have to do that anyway, and you do want to save that money because now you can buy all for 20,000 gil, which I'm now too poor to buy, even though it's such a great material to be able to buy. I was thinking about selling Phoenix, actually. Um, uh, that's uh, that well done. Well, I, I gave it a shot and I tried my best, but no, I lost. Um, but yeah, so that sort of segues into the idea that um, we talked about fighting and going back through without cloud. And w at first, my party felt very weak and definitely deprived of whatever material was missing, um, and definitely cloud strength as well. But um, but after defeating not only that boss, but then later Weapon, which was a major win, I, I really felt like the team was readapting and that my feeling even as a player was less of loss of cloud and more of a increasing cohesion. So not only do we see a unity of cloud's personality in here, we see a sort of 
unifying or reunifying of the team too. Exactly. Yeah. The, the way that it sort of forces you to fight ultimate weapon, ultimate weapon, I think is how it's called. Anyway, weapon, we'll just call it weapon um, without cloud is really interesting given that, you know, ultimately that's how you get his, uh, his final weapon. And so he has some kind of connection with that, um, that beast, you know, like it's a kind of alter ego version of, of him. Uh, and it's the first time that you are actually face to face standing, yeah, standing toe to toe with, with these, these legendary weapons. And, uh, as scary as it is at first, you know, it's not, it's not that insurmountable. Um, and it, it, actually goes it runs away and you sort of are victorious but then of course life stream bubbles up and bursts through the ground so that's all bets are off and i thought sid showed real leadership there not only in his uh uh spunk and pugnacity um or pugnaciousness when he uh yelled you coward you're running away and then showed his ability to inspire too with barrett saying if i could have just had another hit on him i would have taken him out like the team is looking strong and they're feeling strong and then sid says we gotta go and barrett's like what about the other two and he says you don't have time to think about anybody but yourself let's go and i thought that was just great if tifa and cloud are going to save themselves they have to save themselves and that is what they end up having to do in the live stream, which I thought was an excellent lesson besides many of the other lessons that we learned down there on this weird substance that apparently makes you face your past unless you're Tifa. Um, <laughs> you have to do it yourself. You have to put in work yourself. Yeah, the, I think that there's a kind of echo there of, of Sid's um, assistant Shira back in Rocket Town, right? Like he, canceled the mission because he knew that she was in danger. Um, in this case, he saves, you know, the rest of the party, but knows that it's too late to go back for Cloud and Tifa. I don't know whether this is going too far, but it seems like one way to read this is that the life stream is actually like intentionally trying to drag those two into it you know, to, wow. to give them something that they need to, um, you know, re, uh, reconnect and, and put back together before they can do uh, the rest of the, uh, the quest, you know. So I don't know how much, yeah, how far to go with that. But like, yeah, I agree, Sid, you know, probably reliving a little bit of that experience, um, but does seem to make the right decision, the right call here. And well, that's so interesting that you say that they may just be brought together by fate in that way, because... Uh, well, the first thing that, that I wanted to notice is that we see so many inversions there. We saw Tifa for so long playing second string or second fiddle to Ares. And now we actually know that that connection to Ares was not a genuine one because it's the presence of Genova cells and Sephiroth's will and uh, Cloud's imitating of Zack that made Ares like him. And so it was always Tifa. And even though Tifa seemed so second string and like I would have even been disappointed to get her, though I think maybe interested to get her for the golden saucer scene. Um, it turns out that she actually was like the girl who cloud wanted to catch the eye up, but he was too sort of weak. And when her mother died, which he remembered as one of his like most vivid memories, she went on this foolish quest up Mount Nibelheim, which she now 
which he later, five years later, would have, um, um, or excuse me, five years ago, would she would later lead him back across, or so he thought. But then, <laughs> so she thought in a different way, but it turns out that he was actually there, but in disguise. So very Shakespearean here. Um, and she would then lead them across Mount Nibble in the same way that she tried to go up Mount Nibble after her mother died, sort of like pursuing her own demise, it seems. And she fell when, I don't know if it was a bridge collapse. It's funny, it, actually, she fell again the time she was guiding them, which is just an amazing parallel at this moment. Um, but um, that was Cloud's biggest memory uh, from home, and she barely even remembered it and showing that she was more important to him than he was to her. And in fact, she had these two other friends. And so she seems to have been misremembering what the connection between them was too. They both seem to have had a false ideal of who it was in front of them. Yeah, it's, it gets a little convoluted there. Um, but I thought that the way the game laid it out was actually helpful that you sort of physically are moving through a space which is a representation of these discrete but related memories and so you as Tifa right are sort of walking from one corner to the other of this kind of triangle and and in, in triangulating there's this like floating sort of transparent giant cloud who's who's writhing you know and crawling almost and um ultimately as you go around you have to sort of do it in a certain order you can talk to each of the mini cloud figures that are in each of the corners of the triangle but only if you you know go to the right one will a a little scene a, a memory um play out like the, the the memory you're describing the one the sort of big reveal at the end there it will only be unlocked once you once you go through the other two and maybe even a couple of times I kind of forget like I think you might have to bounce back and forth between them a couple times before finally that that third cloud lit will let you walk past and see this like very deeply buried memory uh, which yeah as you say turns out to be one that Tifa seems to be repressing actually or one that she didn't fully understand uh, the significance of it, it's a really interesting bit of uh, uh, depth psychology that's going on here, um, dramatized for us. Yeah, and it's, um, I mean, even the motivation into the world being so, so driven by wanting to be a worthy nature for a woman, and also Cloud's blaming himself and his own lack of strength and resolve, and with a pretty unreasonable standard for not having saved Tifa from herself, essentially on Mount Nibble that first time. He, he thought that he never got in with their group, never got to be their friend because she got injured and he didn't manage to save her and then he got blamed for leading her up there. And I wonder if that's the beginning of the lie in her, her mind about, about their relationship um, to some extent. But I also wanted to ask you about the beginning of the live stream when she's in the darkness with that like discordant music and she's running, and she even physically starts to run from accusations that we cannot see levied at her. We only hear her responding to them. And she does not seem to resolve her situation except by helping to guide Cloud. 
but I just wondered what you thought about that. Well, yeah, I I have a kind of theory that we're seeing something that's pretty bizarre, which is we're seeing Tifa imagine herself helping Cloud put himself back together, but actually, you know, as Cloud is being put back together, Tifa is being put back together too. You know, wow, like very that, strong. That ultimate, you know, that ultimate memory is is hers, and it's it's the perspective of Cloud through which he's able to finally actually see it. And it's a window, like you actually look through a window for that third one. And I thought that's, you know, that's kind of cool because in a sense, you're, you're looking through Cloud's unconscious, um, like repression or whatever, but really you're, you're seeing Tifa's uh, repressed memory. And it's, it's, it's only through uh, piecing Cloud back together that Tifa becomes sort of whole and uh, healthy again. That's excellent. And just to get Freudian and I would say Petersonian on this, it is precisely Tifa stopping lying to Cloud, not sparing him, but also giving him time to put things back together, which helps not only for him to reintegrate, but her to reintegrate because he carries parts of her past that she needs to integrate into herself too, um, that she's been chasing a will-o'-the-wisp. Whereas this guy in front of her is actually different from what both of they, them expected. Um, and so she says, no, Cloud, you didn't come to Nibelheim. You know, it was this guy named Zach. And uh, I didn't see you. And he's like, well, I was actually here. I just didn't show myself to you. I was one of the paratroopers. And even though I never made it to soldier, well, this when Sephiroth burned down my town, apparently I had so much and, and messed you up, cut you down. Well, that's the thing that brings the best out of me. Just like when I climbed Mount Nibble to try and save you this time, I was going to save you again. And wow, his strength of will gives him the ability to, though he, he attacks Sephiroth from behind the first time, uh, gives him the ability to not only get stabbed through apparently the chest, um, with like a foot of blade through him. He grabs the blade, I guess on the sides. And uh, Sephiroth is in disbelief, says this is unbelievable and picks Sephiroth up by his own sword and throws him and the sword out of himself, which must hurt um, into the Mako reactor and into the Mako. Is that life stream down there? Or is it like purified life stream? Is it like what happens to the Joker and Batman and the old Batman series with Michael Keaton and Jack Nicholson? Yeah, I mean, I think that Sephiroth uh, ultimately seems to get reconstituted one way or the other. Um, the the parallel between their falls is, I think, kind of instructive, right? Like, as you say, it's a it's a Mako reactor, and so it it looks kind of like the life stream, but it's a uh, it's an artificial concentration of it for a nefarious purpose. Whereas when Cloud falls into it, it's because he's, you know, um, helpless. He's being like embraced by the planet in a way. And, um, and he doesn't fall alone, right? He's got Tifa there as well. Uh, 
right. I think the other the other really telling image that goes along with that, of course, is is Eris being dropped into the uh, the icy waters uh, at the city of the ancients that we saw back at the end of disc one. Yes, that's very good in three different sorts of beings, but also just their different reactions to what, like, to what they fall into. Sephiroth, just like the corrupted Mako uh, reactor fluid, attempts to corrupt the world in that way, to, attempts to destroy or disintegrate the world, whereas Cloud entering the natural life stream with a partner, Tifa, achieves reintegration of himself in order to prevent the disintegration of the world. Yeah, it's it's a really weird um, kind of recapitulation of what Sephiroth does to you, right? When he's showing you those memories and Cloud is yes. like trying hard not to see them. Whereas this time it's... Apart. Yeah, this time it's Tifa walking you through it, you know, patiently and she's you know, very insistent, like, we're going to figure this out, like, it's okay. Um, and then she sort of, like, she tells him enough of the truth that, um, you know, he seems to feel comfortable, you know, finally, like, accepting that he's been hiding behind this, this persona the whole time, and that, yeah, you know, he was there, right? So in a way, he's telling the truth all along. He just has to sort of explain in what sense... Um, he was uh, he was present uh, and sort of incognito. Okay, so just because for me, Wes, one of the big parts of this project, at least when I was young, when I first visualized it, was to get straight some of the convoluted parts because I considered some of the sort of ideas about um, how this story went down as on par with sort of some of the big ideas that people have never quite grasped in the epics and in philosophy and great philosophical works like Plato and Aristotle. I don't know that I would necessarily agree or disagree with that hypothesis yet, but one of the big questions um, I, I have here or something I want to get clear is, why is Sephiroth holding Genova's head? Why did he cut off her head? And yeah, why that specifically? Why why not the rest of her? What what is what was the intention there? Yeah, is it her head? Like I couldn't tell what that was. Whether that was supposed to be um, her arm, like some tentacle part of her, or what? It's her um, head with the visor, and that's the image that's maintained of her in Advent Children too. Oh, far out! Like to me, that's suggesting that he. Um, has the plan to to reconnect with her in some way, right? And that he's like weakened by that that uh, ambush, so he can't bring all of her along. Um, mm. And so I wonder if like when he falls there, uh, that's like actually I think that must be significant that Genova part of her also falls um, with him, and uh, so whenever they are able to finally reconstitute uh, there at the Northern Cave. Um, they're sort of like, there's a, there's a physical connection where before she was sort of in, um, in a stasis, you know, sealed up. He frees her, he brings enough of her along. 
I, I don't know uh, quite how far to go with like the, uh, the ins and outs of all of the continuity issues here. Cause I don't feel like I have a terribly good grasp on it either. Um, like in what sense cloud is um, exposed to Genova? Like, is that happening in that moment when he goes into that chamber or did he already have that done to him when he tried to join soldier? It sounds like the latter, but I'm not, sh I'm not so sure. I think it might happen when he's beneath the mansion and he then Hojo is running experiments on him and Zach, which we'll see later. But I want to, I want to comment on Genova and Sephiroth. It seems as if what Genova might be is sort of like what, the Shinra's idea of the promised land is a false Edenic ideal in the past, a fantasy where, and this is Freudian and Jungian, Freudian in that it is an attempt for a man, a hero to return to a fantastic past in which he is still a child with his mother. And that's the Freudian aspect. It is infantilizing. But what's Jungian about it is that one's false ideal is destroying one's, or one's delusional ideal, which one thinks one can bring into existence by pursuing the past, which I would say is the leading theme behind the great Gatsby and Gatsby's idea that he can go into the past is sort of like what a siren is and what Genova is, the siren from the Odyssey. Um, that, and that the proof of the evilness of that idea and and why Eden is guarded by flame-wielding cherubim, suggesting that the past cannot be gone into, yeah, is, is that Sephiroth falls. It's precisely because he falls. The pragmatic element that the, the goddess he served killed him. And that's what well, happened. Yeah, well, it's, it is really curious how, how powerful we're supposed to think that he is um, and yet how cloud is able to basically name him, you know, with one blow. Um, it's, it's very strange. Uh, also, like you said, you know, clouds ability to, even with the sword struck, you know, struck through his chest or whatever, he's able to throw him down um, off of the, uh, off of the top of the, the reactor. With some force, yeah. He doesn't just get him over. Like, he throws him as far as Sephiroth had struck down Zack, who was apparently a far greater warrior than yeah. Cloud. It's like, where did this come from? It's almost like when yeah. you start, when you stop lying to yourself, you can do untold things. You can be far more than even you thought when you lived in your delusion. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very... Strange too that um, Tifa, when she falls off the bridge, right, uh, as badly hurt as she is, she ultimately recovers. Um, she hasn't had any kind of exposure. I don't think either of them have at that point, right? So, so there is something kind of supernatural about all of these. Um, I don't know that it fits within the kind of cartoon or anime trope though, right? Like of, of devastating injuries that ultimately don't have lasting consequences. 
I just, I'm curious whether there's sort of like scars that remain from these things, um, like physical scars. Um, and if there are, like, why we never hear about them, I guess, like, that's, that seems like a, a question that would, would naturally be raised. Like, how did I get this huge scar? <laughs> uh, you know, that's amazing. And I don't know. That's, that's sort of touched on here, at least metaphorically, and that they share these memories and they share their sort of mental scars and they share even the genesis of where those physical stars would have come from, that, those memories as well. And so that is so interesting because that is another epic trope. Of course, in the Odyssey, the origin of Odysseus's scars revealed, and that also reveals him by his origins to Eurycleia, his, uh, his nurse and also his son's nurse, so she loves his family. But also in Dante, he describes the path of Ulysses from Cadiz, Spain to the Pillars of Hercules as, um, as being a scar on the world in Paradiso 26 in parallel to Inferno 26. And so it is incredible that that doesn't come up because that would also be something very real and tangible that would connect them together rather than, uh, you know, this strange sort of um, fantasy connection that they had. I, you know, something just very interesting talking about this now is their connection seems very real now and why he would have pursued the things he pursued rather than just some false noble ideals and her false noble perception of him and his false looking down on her it's it's also false <laughs> well yeah and his his whole problem with telling the truth um has sort of driven a lot of the plot so far i i wonder sort of what kind of personality we're left with after all of this it seems like he's basically a very earnest and um you know vulnerable kind of person who probably doesn't really understand himself very well at all um it's it's almost like he is kind of being reborn here and needs to sort of um start fresh it's hard yeah well it's so, kind of like what the story is doing at this point too right we've sort of reset after one sort of quest and now we're on a, a sort of different one getting all this huge material together um as you say like just leveling up and and maxing out the party that you want to use for the rest of the game basically um so it's it's a different kind of beginning to the story here yeah and you know it's so interesting instead of you being like this angel is fighting the ultimate devil and being on equal ground it's like actually you're this far weaker individual who was never even close to being on equal ground with him but on the other hand too it's almost like you're just going to finish the job you started with this guy. And it's like, you know, you beat him once, as strong as he was, and now you're, you face yourself. It's almost like that's the ultimate form to attain towards. They, they say in weightlifting circles, you know, lift as lightly as you need, but get the form down because then you'll just add numbers. And it's almost like that's the, the notion behind uh, being at, I think, Dagobah with Yoda yeah, for Luke Skywalker when he faces Darth Vader or the darkness within himself in um, the second Star Wars, or I guess now the fifth Star Wars, um, and uh, that once Cloud's faced his ultimate fear, which is revealing to Tifa his utter weakness and failure to attain the, the glorious ideal that he thought would draw her to him, and, and she's been drawn to him all the same, it's like, well, you know, 
uh, Sephiroth's not so big a deal. The world ending is not so big a deal. It's like the ultimate humiliation has been spared to him. The ultimate grace has been given to him and he's faced it. And um, it's almost like that, that would give one the strength of character necessary to face anything. Yeah, it's, it's striking, I think, how, how the story sort of fills in these, um, these powerful images. And I, I feel like there's a, a connection there with the idea of a life stream, right? It's only like manifesting and then flowing back into itself. Um, to me, that's sort of what the story is doing here. It's like we have these, these iconic images of, you know, fighting Sephiroth there in, in the reactor. Like we don't really understand how they fit together. We need to see how that connects with that other iconic image of them under the the stars um, in the middle of town that night when they're saying, you know, their their dreams for the future, their wishes and whatnot. Right. So we have these images and we need to like fill them in with something. And um, it seems like that's sort of the idea behind what the life stream does is like it it comes up and manifests itself. Um, for the purposes of giving life and and also continuity to these images, and I think that's sort of it's sort of the way that um, uh, Mikhail was talking about anime as well. Like to an extent, the story is a as a secondary consideration next to the the style and these events that you want to portray and the kind of feeling that they evoke, which is practically numinous, but also maybe just sort of satisfying and like comfortable. Um, there's like kind of a, a, a balance between those two. But anyhow, that, that seems to be what's going on here. And, and so I wouldn't push too hard on the, the continuity of it all. But yeah, that on the other hand, we do need to sort of fill out this person cloud and have some kind of foundation for him and it seems like he's finally got a good one well and you know it seems like just just to sort of piggyback on that point uh, but also find a third way is that it seems like the very beginning of the story the first disc was about indulging in fantasy and learning the mechanics of the fantasy and learning about this Ares creature who's this different creature from a human and how they are different these ancients these cetera from humans and then also there's this Genova this you know, calamity from the skies, and uh, what is what is Sephiroth, and there are these people with Mako eyes, and it's all very strange, but, uh, you know, with the death of Ares and the death of potentially, you know, that fantasy or delusion, what we're now getting into are, are the human elements of our character, what makes them human, um, that which is uh, the real take-home message, is it's as if the game now putting a clock on itself, like Majora's Mask, like you said, with the comet in the sky, the meteor and uh us about to face having to end the game by beating it um it's as if it is getting to its ultimate lesson um just as we fight ultimate weapon its ultimate human lesson about facing one's own failures in order to re in order to see oneself correctly to know who one really is yeah and I think at this point in the game, there's a kind of um, reflection of that in your ability to basically like go anywhere, right? Like 
maybe you don't notice it first, but your your vehicles actually are gone. The ones that you used to have, the tiny Bronco and the little sand buggy, are both just with no explanation. They're they're just not there anymore. Um, but on the other hand, you've got the airship, and pretty soon you're gonna have the uh, submarine too. So you can you can go not only anywhere like through the sky, you know, all that good stuff. You also like literally can descend to the depths uh, safely, you know, and well, more or less, you have to avoid emerald weapon, like you mentioned. <laughs> right. And then you have your terrestrial chocobo, like what you just got there. And so yeah. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to congratulate you on that and say, do you already have Knights of the Round? I suppose it would only take you about 10 seconds after getting that golden chocobo to do that. But how long did it take you to do the chocobo, uh, to get to the, to the golden chocobo this time around? I did that this morning. It probably took a couple hours. Uh, with with the the guide that we've been using on Jag or Jagged or what however you press, like it really breaks it down pretty straightforwardly for you. The um, the process of doing it is you know you fly between Gold Saucer and the Chocobo Farm basically uh, once you go around catching a few chocobos down in Medeal. Uh, so, you know, there's some traveling involved. There's some, you have to sort of make time pass within the game by, by fighting some random battles here and there. Uh, but really, and you know, you get to do cho chocobo racing. And that's pretty fun. Uh, you have a chance of getting some pretty good items there. I didn't get any particularly good materia through that yet, but I'm still hopeful that at some point maybe I will. But I mean, yeah, you don't really need it either. It's just sort of like, how how far do you want to go with that, right? Like honestly nights of the round you don't you don't really need either uh <laughs> because at this point your characters are like are ridiculously strong you know um but it's i think it's something that is symbolically really interesting to to think about like you you're brought back to the initial uh continent where you started right the chocobo farm is one of the first places that you actually get to outside of midgar and uh Lo and behold, it has, it has the key to, to getting like the, the most powerful materia, not the huge materia, but this kind of other version of that, um, a natural version of it. It's a legendary materia too, Knights of the Round. It tells a story of Arthur and the Round Table and it's, it's of almost infinite power. I think it hits, what, 17 times for several thousand uh, hit points each. It's absurdly overpowered. I think you can beat Sephiroth with one cast of that whereas an emerald weapon takes like 10 that you need to w cast or double cast on that i see i've never i've never fought the weapons ruby and emerald like i've never been brave enough or foolhardy enough to try to do that so i'll see if i do this time around you know for the purposes of um of completionism or whatever uh but it's just it is like so long in casting. I haven't actually used it yet, but I just remember. And so if you're going to W summon, you know, it takes so long to get W summon first thing, right? If going through the battle arena thing. And then like the actual animation takes so long <laughs> to play that I, I'd much rather just have like a really strong physical attack and have, you know, high stats and high speed, have haste or whatever. And just like, wail on enemies with with that or with uh 
I don't know, like Comet or, or Ultima Materia, because it's just so much faster. Yeah, I think that's ultimately very intelligent that that um, that weapons can sort of be sort of an MMRPG sort of major fight against a dragon from back in the EverQuest days, where it's just several hours of repeatedly doing essentially the same thing with minor divergences when things change. It's like, but yeah, cat, you basically cast uh, W summon uh, Knights of the Round 10 times and make sure that you have final attack full heal or full life rather for everybody for when you all die. Um, and that's kind of how, that's kind of the, the equation right there. And, um, but I, I wanted to mention one thing that I wanted to run by you because we were texting about this beforehand, which is the symbolism behind the, the, um, the transportation you have and how that accords with alchemical symbolism. And also with this notion of the Phoenix and uh, what we've been talking about with reconstitution of the personality under a true Aegis rather than a false or delusional one this time around, uh, which is that you start with, um, you know, the tiny Bronco or, yeah, sorry, the, you know, the car that is a terrestrial object. And then you move on to the Highland, which is aerial. And then you move down into the submarine. And you can also get your Chocobo so that you get your terrestrial uh, uh, transportation or fast transportation back on land and also across water if it's gold um, because um, after you lose your your car which as you said sort of miraculously disappears um, and so the alchemists sort of believe that you start with a the ability to sense and just basic awareness and consciousness you see the superficial it's sort of the platonic scene the shadows on the walls from the republic and then you learn the ability to sort of speculate or think lofty thoughts. That's the high wind riding in the airship, you know, sort of without care and sort of during the Aries time of just, uh, you know, fighting the epic battle of uh, against the evil villain and trying to save the girl and actually ending up being part of the reason that she dies, which is terrible. But that's, that's the submarine that the ultimate gift the alchemists say is not just thinking of lofty conceptions like forms, but using one's intellect to, to dive into one's own sort of feces was their image. One's own, as we would say, shit, you know, one's bad stuff, one's negatives. And this is what we see Cloud and Tifa doing. And that the ultimate gift of the intellect or, or the rational intellect is to be able to see your own flaws. And that once Cloud has done this, we also get the ability to do this ourselves and we get our submarine. Yeah, the submarine, uh, again, is super scary at first because you can't see very far and you know the emerald is down there somewhere. Or if you don't know about emerald, you soon find out and then you're scared very, mu yes. very much very quickly. So, Oh my gosh, when you first run into him, he's big and scary, but you remember ultimate weapon and you're like, no problem. And then he casts like yeah. a storm or steps oh. on you for 7,200 damage. You're like, oh <laughs> my God. Right. It's not the right. same. You just, you, he just kills you easily. And you're like, what? That was so unfair and terrible. And that is the underworld. That is, those are the depths. You know, he's Poseidon or Hades, and he's a god down there, and you better watch out. <laughs> right. Well, the other thing that's down there uh, is uh, the way to a few really good side quests, really worth doing. Um, you get to go meet Lucretia um, yes. and hear a little more about her. And it's like, it's told 
pretty much just through images. Again, it's like it's like the sketch of a manga or an anime or something. You see these little scenes of her and Vincent uh, go by, and uh, and you can also go to the um, sunken uh, Shinra airship, the uh, Gelnica, and sorry that that is um, pretty scary as well. Uh, you have some really tough random enemy encounters in there, which uh, will quickly uh, level up your team and you find some like really good materia and, and weapons and stuff in there. So I hope next time we get to talk a little bit about uh, that particular descent to the depths. I recall that being difficult and scary and also Emerald Weapon being pretty scary. And yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, filling out this speculation of mine, this hypothesis and seeing if it can hold true or begin to show itself uh, for its truth as we delve through these missions. I'm looking forward to getting into them, uh, Wes. I'm, to getting into the depths while we have something coming down to destroy us from the heights. Truly, uh, uh, the way down is the way up. Yeah, it's, it's abbreviated a bit. Like, again, I feel like as the game goes on, it sort of gets attenuated. Whereas in Midgar, there's so much to do. There's so many aspects of it. Um, and then as the game goes on, you know, it sort of accelerates. Um, these, these huge materia missions go by pretty quickly. Um, but on the other hand, conceptually or thematically, yeah, it's, it's very, very interesting and I think important that we have this, uh, this new mode of transport, this new world to explore down there. So, yeah. Looking forward to, to getting into that. Yeah, I, I suppose as usual, we'll look forward to going deep. <laughs> All yeah. right, well, I think, I think we did a pretty good job. We had to condense it a little bit because of uh, what we had done before, but I think in, that's the true alchemical process to be able to condense that down, uh, which one said with many words into few words and to get maximal meaning in that respect. And so I think we did a good job there. Yeah, I I find that this is all stuff that I have pretty much forgotten. So it's really interesting to get to go through it with a little more attention. Um, so funny, uh, yeah, funny how Tifa brought that up. It's amazing how much we can forget. Yeah, especially when we distill down the memory of something, and especially when we get the memory wrong. Which it's funny to what extent we now are like Tifa and Cloud, going mm -hmm. back through this to see what we originally got wrong and checking with each other what to find what's actually there. And you know, it's interesting, we sort of, or, and you particularly, I think, sort of disparaged the sort of cult of Sephiroth, I think on good grounds, thinking that it was sort of overblown. And for a long time, even well past when I was too young to be having these sorts, of, or too old to have these sorts of thoughts, I, I sort of thought Sephiroth was an ultimate sort of accolade ideal and that he was just so stellar that he was worth emulating but I didn't know my Iliad well enough at that time to know that Achilles is not somebody that you strive towards. It's Odysseus, that it's more like the Batman, not the Superman. Of course, the, the natural Superman is a figure of the God that you'll never be. And so to try and be like him is to pursue a false ideal in the same way that he does through Genova. Uh, the true ideal is to be like Cloud and to recognize one's own weakness and to, you know, try and overcome that to whatever extent one can and make something good in the world. And I think, I think going back through this has been very useful for me for cleaning up my own ideologies or my, or my own ideals, my own perceptions of self based on 
um, narratives from the past and what it is they could teach me and how they motivated me moving forward. Totally. Yeah. No, I think the, the more people that we can talk to who are um, familiar with this game and maybe uh, kind of delve into its lore over a long period of time, I think it'll be interesting to see how that experience of, of yours, of ours, maps onto uh, other, other people who played it when they were younger and then, you know, kept playing it or, or have gone back to it since um, and looked at it more carefully. Yeah. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, uh, another, uh, another good start to the week because it's Sunday. Yeah. And, uh, back to Harry Potter tomorrow and maybe, um, do some, find some time for some recurrent events and, and good stuff like that. Yes, that, and definitely some night school. We, we were hitting the night school bottle very hard lately, or, or, or we were hitting the bottle very hard, uh, the night school bottle, but we, uh, we haven't been lately. So hopefully some time for some frost. All right. Sounds All right. good. Till then. See ya.